WHYY and Billy Penn. It is hitting season. Hey there, podcast pals. I'm John Stolness from The Good Fight and Billy Penn. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. Coming up, we're going to talk about some interesting stuff that came down the pike this week from Scott Lauber about the Phillies' pursuit of Yashinobu Yamamoto and what it means for their future trying to get good players to come to Philadelphia from Japan. We'll also go over the Phillies' luxury tax situation. We'll talk a little bit more about Whit Merrifield. And I want to talk about a Ken Rosenthal article in The Athletic about the Boris Four, the four big free agents of Scott Boris, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Cody Bellinger, Matt Chapman, all still available. As time ticks by, could the Phillies jump in? Why they could? and why they might not. Also, the Phillies on the top 100 MLB network, and they released their top 10 on Wednesday, Some an interesting top 10 of the top 100 players in Major League Baseball right now. So I'll talk about all that stuff coming up here on this edition of Hit and Season. But I did want to start off with a report by Scott Lauber this week that I wrote about for The Good Fight, where he, talking about the Phillies' pursuit of Yamamoto, the 25-year-old Japanese phenom who signed a 12-year $325 million contract with the Dodgers. Lauber reported this week that after meeting for three hours on December 14th, remember they did that video presentation, Bryce Harper appeared on it. The Phillies, according to Scott Lauber, offered more money than any other team, including the Dodgers. That's according to multiple industry sources uh, that Lauber is, uh, is, is passing along. That is incredible. We knew that the Phillies made a legitimate offer. I think the reporting at the time was that they had made a $300 million plus offer, but I don't know that any of us had known that the Phillies offer was the highest. Now, we don't know how long the contract was, so it might have been uh, it might have been the highest in terms of overall value, but maybe not necessarily in terms of average annual value, but hard to see them going longer than 12 years. Uh, so my guess is that it was a something like a 12-year deal and that it was for more money. And it just proves that the team is committed to getting heavily involved in the Japanese player market here moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to go high on the hog on every big time Japanese name that comes down the pike or even that they'll probably that there might be several off seasons maybe even over the next couple of off seasons where they sit it out because they don't feel that there is a prospect who's going to be posted uh, that is worthy of shelling out big dollars but uh, we it was a surprise to read that it was the Phillies who submitted the highest bid offered Yamamoto the most money just it makes sense that he decided to go with the Dodgers he has fellow countryman Shohei Otani already there. He had signed earlier in the offseason. So there's that comfort level of having another Japanese player, a Japanese star, someone who came from playing in Japan, has made the transition to the major leagues. What, what a great situation for Yamamoto to be in. And he's loved the Dodgers since he was a kid. So you can understand that if the Dodgers were offering 325 and let's say the, the Phillies were offering 330 or 335 or something like that, you can understand why Yamamoto went to Los Angeles. But I think as we're looking at it from a Phillies perspective, this is encouraging news for fans because for, for a long time, the Phillies have ignored Japan. They haven't been on in they haven't been on any of the top Japanese imports. Not not even sniffing around the 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 edges of it. And this is an area, we've seen the Phillies go after some players from Korea, but J Japan is an area that has been sending Major League Baseball really good players for two decades now. 
This is not a new phenomenon, and it's always been kind of interesting that the Phillies have never really spent big on a Cuban import, which has kind of waned in recent years, right? There was that, there was that time when Cuban imports were, were coming over fast and furious, and I think some of the new rules have, have loosened those restrictions a little bit about Cuban players coming to America, but uh, th that's not a real thing anymore. But the Phillies never really got involved with any of those type of players, and they've never really gotten involved with any Japanese big name players. Well, now they finally have. And that has to have trickled down through the Japanese uh, baseball landscape. What the Phillies offer was the fact that they really, the Phillies, and I saw some, some tweets about this too. The Phillies knew they weren't going to get Yamamoto so they could go ahead and they could offer him the most money. And it really was no risk to them because he probably wasn't going to take it. Well, you can't, you don't, offer somebody $330, $340 million and hope they don't take it. The only way you make that offer, you better be ready for them to take that offer if you're going to make it. So that holds no water to me, that argument. For those of you who are thinking, well, it's easy for the Phillies to offer more than anybody else because they knew he wasn't going to sign in Philadelphia. There's a, why not? Players sign for the biggest dollar amount all the time. Sometimes signing with teams that they didn't think they were going to sign with because the money was too good to pass up. There, it certainly did look like it was either going to be the Yankees or the Dodgers for Yamamoto, but you can't offer that kind of money and think, well, this is just for show anyway. No, 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 no. That's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. You don't, you don't put that kind of offer on the table unless you are fully prepared to pay it out because if if some if that's a bluff and Yamamoto or some other player calls your bluff, you are neck deep in it, friends. Uh, that is not something that a responsible team owner or businessman does. You don't risk hundreds of millions of dollars to, what, curry favor with a Phillies fan base who never expected them to be in on the Yamamoto sweepstakes to begin with? None of us were expecting the Phillies to make a play for this guy. They didn't have to go about trying to make it seem like they were making inroads in Japan and paying lip service. They didn't have to do that. None of us none of us were anticipating it or expecting it or demanding it. So this was a legitimate offer. The Phillies really were pursuing Yamamoto and he signed with the Dodgers and you can understand why. But this should give Phillies fans some confidence that when these types of players come down the pike over the next few seasons, that the Phillies will at least be in the game. It may take a couple of cycles for Japanese players to get used to the idea of Philadelphia. The more the Phillies are playing in October, the more times we see Citizens Bank Park rocking out like it has the last two Octobers, the more Philadelphia and the Phillies are starting are going to get ingrained into the minds of, of Japanese players. And when the Phillies are offering this kind of money, and maybe if the Phillies win a title, at some point, a title or two, I'm getting greedy over these next few years. Now, all of a sudden, you're a destination. The Phillies are probably already a destination for a lot of different players. I mean, they have been for a lot of players here uh, who, who are playing for different teams in Major League Baseball. But this is a good sign. This is a good development for the Phillies and an eye-opener, for sure, that they were the highest bidder for Yamamoto. John Middleton was not fooling around, and he is not fooling around. 
trying to get this team a World Series title. Uh, Middleton spoke this week to reporters and kind of spilled the beans a little bit that they were aggressive in going after bullpen help. So pushing against the notion that the Phillies have been inactive, they've been active. But according to Middleton, some of these moves just didn't work out. He mentioned Jordan Hicks specifically. Uh, Middleton was offering Jordan Hicks a big deal to be a reliever in the Phillies bullpen, the Craig Kimbrell replacement. Uh, but he decided to go sign with the San Francisco Giants because they were offering him an opportunity to be a starting pitcher. Uh, Robert Stevenson, another right-hander who pitched very well for the Rays at the end of last season, kind of an unsung guy who the Rays figured something out with him. We've talked about him on the podcast a bunch. The Phillies were rumored to be a destination for him. They apparently made an aggressive offer for Stevenson, but he signed with the Angels to be close to his home in Southern California. You know, there you don't sign with the Angels unless there is an ancillary reason. Like, you don't go sign with the Angels and hope that you're going to be making the playoffs. So obviously, Stevenson went to went to Anaheim or Los Angeles, or wherever it is they are, and signed with the Angels because he wanted to be closer to home. And then and then Middleton basically said, once we lost a couple of those main guys, Dave Dombrowski simply told me, let's just, let's hold our powder now. Let's save our powder for the trade deadline. Middleton said, we were going to sign Yamamoto for a lot, a lot of money, and we never, never thought twice about it in terms of a budget impact. Um, same thing with Hicks and Stevenson. We thought they were just really good players that were going to help move the needle. And then Dombrowski said for them to hold their powder until the trade deadline. So that's what the Phillies decided to do. No sense signing these lesser-tiered relief pitchers that they didn't feel could really be helpful. Of course, we were looking at guys like Ryan Stanek and Hector Neris and some other guys that we thought would be good additions. The Phillies don't agree, apparently, and decided to go in uh, a wait-and-see mode. And there will be relief pitchers traded this summer. The Phillies are going about bringing in minor league guys and uh, guys who have some upside. Maybe they flash in AAA and they can call them up during the course of the season in case the guys they already have in there don't get the job done. But watching Orion Kirkering here early in camp, he looks really sharp. Uh, the Phillies do have already one of the best bullpens in baseball. So it's not as if this bullpen has a ton of holes in it. You hope that Hoffman and Kirkering can step up and, and give you that give you that uh, that production from from inside the organization. Um, but it is fair to look at the luxury tax situation, especially if they're going to be making moves in the middle of the season. After Whit Merrifield signed his $8 million contract, $7 million in salary, and a $1 million buyout of next year's option, the Phillies' competitive balance tax number now sits at a little over $261 million. So that puts them into the surcharge bracket, which penalizes teams that spend between $20 million and $40 million over the tax threshold. But they are still about $16 million clear of the next tax threshold, where then you would be penalized draft picks. So by waiting until July, essentially anybody you buy, you're only dealing with a prorated portion of that contract. So let's say that there's a relief pitcher that interests them at the trade deadline, close to July 31st or August 1st, I guess is what it is now. And that player is making $8 million, so the Phillies will only be on the hook for $4 million of that. So they want to avoid certainly that next luxury tax scenario. Now, what does that mean in terms of, say, adding one of the Boris Four? Now you're talking about some, some issues, and one of the reasons why 
even though these guys are kind of lingering on the vine a little bit, if you're going to sign Jordan Montgomery to a one-year deal, let's say it's for $20 million, $25 million, maybe it's even a little bit more than that. Now you are going over that additional tax threshold where you're giving up draft picks. Now, again, that may not be as big a deal to the Phillies, the, the extra taxes and the, and the draft picks. For Jordan Montgomery, putting him in the number three spot in your starting rotation, bumping everybody down, maybe that's worth it. And maybe John Middleton does want that trophy back enough to, to go ahead and do that. Because John Middleton made an impassioned speech to the team in Clearwater this week, where he basically reiterated some that old famous line from the 2000 after the 2009 season when he said, I want my bleeping trophy back. JT Real Muto was talking a little bit about it to reporters and some other players uh, were talking a little bit about a fiery speech that John Middleton gave the team about uh, about getting the trophy back. And it is great to see an owner who's focusing on that. There was an article in The Athletic today about the Pittsburgh Pirates talking about why they continue to meander in the wilderness of mediocre baseball. And it's because they have an owner who is more concerned about managing costs than he is about putting a winning product on the field. And there, there's other reasons why that organization continues to be lost. But that's the big one. It comes down to your owner. If your owner is not committed to winning, you are not going to win. And John Middleton's speech may not take the Phillies to the World Series. The fact that he's spending a lot of money, the fact that he is in the second luxury tax threshold right now, doesn't guarantee anything. We've seen big money teams fall short these last few years. There's no guarantee of anything. But having an owner like this gives you a shot. And going into the clubhouse and, and trying to fire up the players by, you know, I, 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 I don't know if some of the players eye roll when an owner comes into the clubhouse and talks about how much he wants to win. But when the owner has put the money forward, right, when he does, for a 25-year-old pitcher, offer more money than anybody else to go get this guy, when he does consistently sign guys to big money, big-time deals, He's already proven to you, his, putting his money where his mouth is, he's already done that part of it. So you know that the guy means it, right? It's not like you've got the A's owner walking into the middle of the clubhouse or the Pirates owner walking into the middle of the clubhouse where you know these guys aren't wanting to spend, where they're trying to make sure that they can squeeze every last drop out of the baseball budget and not going any further than that. Not giving the players, not giving the team, not giving the organization what it needs in order to be successful. And then they go in and they try to rah-rah you. Doesn't work. But John Middleton is a fan like the rest of us. He wants this team to win desperately. And he has gone about making moves at the behest of Dave Dombrowski to go ahead and, and, and get this team a parade down Broad Street again. And so I think it's kind of I think it's kind of cool. And I think the players take him at his word. I think they take him seriously. And I I don't think I think in a lot of other clubhouses that would kind of be a joke. I don't think that was a joke. I don't think it was, I don't think the players took it as a joke. I think that they like that they have an owner that cares as much about winning a World Series as they do because they know if there is a chance, a way to make this team better, John Middleton's going to take it. He's going to take it and he's going to try and make this team better. One of the things that they have done over the last week is the the signing of Whit Merrifield. Uh, and we've talked a lot about Whit Merrifield. I'm not going to get into a whole big thing about Whit Merrifield because 
at the end of the day, the best case scenario for this team is for Whit Merrifield to get not a ton of at-bats. If Whit Merrifield is playing a lot, that means he's playing a lot of second base, which means Bryson Stott is either struggling or is injured or they're platooning him more than they should be. Or it means that Johan Rojas hasn't worked out because that means you have Brandon Marsh in center field and you're you're playing you're playing with Merrifield against a lot of uh, left handers, um, you know, or, or Brandon Marsh is struggling. And so you have Whit Merrifield in the lineup uh, against uh, against left handers because Marsh can't handle them. Either way, some of these core guys that we're that we're counting on are struggling in some way. Really, Whit Merrifield is kind of Brandon Marsh, uh, Johan Rojas insurance at this point. And I know uh, Michael Bauman, friend of the podcast, wrote a really good article for Fangraphs talking about Whit Merrifield and his progression or regression over these last few years as he's gotten a little bit older. And I know the Phillies have said that they're hopeful that by being a part-time player, that some of the uh, the the fall of his numbers uh, over these last few years are due to the fact that he's aging. But of course, you know, you see all the people who are online going up and, and doing their doing their stats, um, you know, going on to baseball reference and uh, stopping, you know, putting an end date of when the decline really started. And it was through August last year that Whit Merrifield was still hitting over 300. The, the fact is Whit Merrifield is a bat play as a bench player. He's a, he's somebody that this team needed to improve their bench that when, when, one of the everyday guys had to had to swap out, and you had to bring somebody in off the bench to hit. There was nothing there. I mean, Edmundo Sosa really struggled at the plate last year. Jake Cave didn't give you what you wanted to. Cody Clemens didn't give you what you needed. For the short time, Derek Hall was in there. He couldn't give you much. Uh, Christian Pache, good defense, not much of a bat. Really a redundant player on this team right now with Johan Rojas in the fold. When when. Johan Rojas was in double A and nobody thought he was going to reach the big leagues. It was, you know, the Christian Pache was that guy. But then when Pache got hurt and you needed somebody, you bring Rojas up and then all of you see, all of a sudden you see, whoa, this guy can play defense. And he was hitting a little bit. He was getting some, some good luck at the plate. Pache comes back. And now I don't really know what his fit is with this team. So I could very easily see Whit Merrifield making this roster over Christian Pache because I don't, I don't, I think Pache and, and Rojas are redundant players, but Whit Merrifield is not going to give you that star production, but you do hope that he gives you a better bat off the bench and he's a better sub than Josh Harrison was for this team a couple of years ago. Because I think that when the Phillies signed Josh Harrison, this is the kind of player they thought that they were going to get or were hoping to get. Looking at Whit Merrifield's Zips projections for this year, According to the whips, uh, the the Zips projection, 488 plate appearances for him. I would be shocked if he gets that many plate appearances. Uh, but they have him hitting 249 with a 295 on base percentage and a 358 slugging percentage, a weighted runs created of just 79. That would not be the kind of offensive performance you're looking for from a guy like Whit Merrifield. But I, I think it's a fairly reasonable slash line level of production if he's going to get 488 plate appearances. Now, if he's around 300, which is, I think, kind of where we're all thinking and hoping he'll be, I think those numbers could tick up a little bit. But again, just, I, I like the fact the Phillies went out and got something where you have just a, a little bit more veteran presence on the bench, a little bit more certainty from the right side of the plate, from an outfielder. I think he does certainly have more offensive potential than Christian Pache, 
which is why I think he should make the team over Pache. Pache does not have any minor league options left, so the Phillies would have to expose him to waivers. They may not want to do that, uh, but they may have to do that because if you've got Rojas and Pache and Merrifield all on the team at the same time, that's a lot of redundancy, it seems to me. And I know Merrifield has that positional flexibility of being able to play second base, but I don't see Bryson Stott sitting a whole lot this year. So... Interesting decisions for the Phillies here. I, I, getting with Merrifield makes sense. It was a good move to make, but it's not, again, it's to help beef up the bench, which can play a really big role during a 162-game season. You need those guys who can do that. I want to talk a little bit, too, about this article from Ken Rosenthal talking about the Boris Four. We're talking about Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Cody Bellinger, and Matt Chapman. They are all still waiting to sign with a big league team. Blake Snell, a two-time Cy Young Award winner the reigning Cy Young Award winner in the National League, still waiting for a job. Jordan Montgomery, one of the best left-handed starting pitchers in baseball, really the last three years, still waiting for a job. Cody Bellinger had a career year with the Cubs last year. A lot of it, again, we've talked to different people on the podcast, a lot of it kind of through smoke and mirrors. His batted ball data suggested that he didn't have as good a year, or he shouldn't have had, the numbers that he put up as he did. And then Matt Chapman is an, is an outstanding defensive third baseman who, whose offense has fallen away, but would be a serious upgrade at the hot corner for a number of contenders. Um, but Ken Rosenthal talks to a number of GMs across the league who sound as if they're done. He quoted uh, Rangers GM Chris Young, the Rangers seen as a prime landing spot for Jordan Montgomery. He says, I don't think there are any additions coming at this point. Blue Jays general manager Ross Atkins, who could certainly use Bellinger or Chapman, or really, frankly, any of these four guys, says at this point, additions that would be of significance would mean some level of subtraction, which means he'd have to remove guys from the big league roster in order to add these guys. Giants president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, in Rosenthal's piece said, uh, it's a little bit more disruptive to add at this point. And you know, anybody who's a free agent, we've theoretically had three and a half months to figure out a deal. And if it hasn't happened yet, at some point organizationally, you just need to turn the page and focus on the players you have. Sounds like GMs are ready to move on. Now, is this posturing? It sure could be. We've seen the Phillies posturing a little bit here too. Dave Dombrowski has said he's open to citing a guy like George, Jordan Montgomery on a, on a one- or a two-year deal, but that the, that asking price hasn't come down just yet. I would imagine a Chris Young might be willing on a one-year deal to take some of these guys, or Ross Atkins or, or Zaidi would be willing to take one of these guys on a one- or a two-year deal. But one of the other problems that Rosenthal notes is that a lot of the big spenders appear to be done. The Dodgers are done. The Braves are done. The Astros just extended Jose Altuve, as, uh, as Rosenthal notes. Um, they signed Josh Hader to a $95 million deal. Uh, the Mets are not spending money this offseason. They are basically taking a gap year at this point. The Red Sox, who knows what the Red Sox are doing? And then you got teams like the Phillies, who have traditionally signed a lot of Boris guys. They don't appear ready to jump, right? The Padres are cutting costs. Um, the Nationals, who have always signed a lot of Boris guys, they're rebuilding. Are they going to sign Matt Chapman? Are they going to sign one of those starting pitchers? I doubt it. So, you know, it's... And then you've got teams, and one of the things we've talked about, and I think Mike Petriello mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. You can still catch our, our interview, by the way, on the Hit and Season YouTube page 
Uh, so if you just uh, go over to YouTube and and type Hit and Season into the search window, you can subscribe to the YouTube Hit and, the Hit and Season YouTube page, and you can catch my interview with Mike Petriello there from a couple weeks ago. But he talked about the cable TV deals, the uncertainty over the regional sports networks. That is affecting the Rangers because at the winter meetings, um, a number of owners were kind of freaking out about the loss of local television revenue. And... You know, there's there, there's an issue with the Rangers losing that kind of money, and the, the Rangers aren't the only teams. They're the only team that that's worried about that. Um, you know, I think uh, Rosenthal mentioned that if the Yankees were to sign Blake Snell to a one-year, forty million dollar deal, which I guess is the kind of numbers we're talking about here for a guy like Blake Snell, with the taxes that they would have to bet to pay for being that far over the tax, it would make it a one-year, eighty-four million dollar contract. That's not happening. So one of the things that Rosenthal is saying that Boris has totally, really for the first time, Boris is a Hall of Fame agent, but Rosenthal's reporting that some in the industry believe that he has misread the market, uh, that he wanted Snell to sign first so that it would raise the bar for Jordan Montgomery. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, that could have been a, a Boris plan, but Boris has denied that. Um, the Cubs are also among teams that are, one of the things Boris likes to do is go directly to the owner, go around team presidents, go around the general manager and pitch directly to the owner. I think we've seen him do that with John Middleton in years past, but other teams right now are, from Rosenthal's story, blocking that signature move. So I don't know. It seems as though as each day passes and the Phillies are still waiting around, they say they're willing to engage if the price comes down. It seems as though that each day that passes into the spring and we get closer to March, these guys want to go somewhere. But I do agree with Farhan Zaidi, who said that at this point it could be more disruptive than, than anything else. I think we've seen that with the Phillies in recent past. When Nick, One of the reasons Nick Castellanos struggled so badly in his first season was because of how late he signed in the offseason. His whole offseason was, was, was upside down. He was thrust into a city he didn't know without a whole lot of warning. And if you're just signing a guy like Jordan Montgomery to a one-year deal, are you willing to sacrifice the first two months of the season as this guy gets acclimated to a new place, to, to a new surrounding? It's not a guarantee that it's going to start off that way, but that's, that's a risky run. Bryce Harper's first half of the season, when he signed with the Phillies, he signed so late in that offseason leading into 2019. He was not a very productive player. He was not the kind of player we've come to know. He struggled at times for good, for good long stretches because there was all of this adjustment that was going on. I remember talking about that. When you sign as a player late in the offseason, it can be disruptive both, both for you, the player, and for the team. So, so I think the Phillies, I don't think signing Jordan Montgomery at this point, would throw the Phillies into upheaval, would throw the Phillies into chaos. That seems like a, a clubhouse that will just keep on trucking. But how much would it affect Montgomery? It could. but there, so, so that's the negative side of it. And of course, we just I talked about the luxury tax implications of signing one of these guys to a one-year deal. And maybe it's a one-year $10 million deal that would work. Do you really see Montgomery signing a one-year $10 million deal at this point? Absolutely not. He's not signing for anything less than what the qualifying offer would have been. And I forget what that number is, but it was it was in the teens for sure. Well into the teens. 
like 17 and a half million dollars, I think is what it was. I'm not going to look it up, but that's certainly you're not getting him for less than that. And again, the Phillies are $16 million under that next threshold. Now, does that matter to John Middleton? I don't know. For a long time, it appeared as though the luxury tax was a big deal to him. And now we're just flying past luxury tax numbers seemingly without any care. And he's willing to go over that number for Yamamoto. Would he be willing to do that for one year of Jordan Montgomery or two years of Jordan Montgomery? I don't know. And they'd have to figure out what to do with Taiwan Walker. They'd have to move Taiwan Walker or they would send Christopher Sanchez to the minors. I don't think that that would be the thing they do. I think they'd try to find a trade partner for Taiwan Walker. But at the end of the day, the longer Snell and Montgomery hang around, it becomes more likely that the Phillies jump into the mix. And it's it's starting to have that kind of feel because as Rosenthal mentioned, you run down all these potential suitors for these guys. Again, maybe it's posturing. The Phillies are posturing a little bit probably, although I don't think the Phillies are posturing. I think they really believe that they're done. But for teams like the Yankees, who could still use starting pitching, the Rangers, the Cubs, all these different, the Giants, they need to add. But they're saying they're done. Who knows? Who knows? I just know that with each day that passes and the fact that Boris does have a relationship with this foot, with this baseball team, with John Middleton in particular, that it becomes more likely that one of these guys is available. I'm starting to get, I'm more optimistic by the day that the Phillies land a Jordan Montgomery for a one-year deal or a two-year deal. I would say the odds are still better than not that they don't, but this is, this is the kind of a scenario where a team like the Phillies or Dave Dombrowski would jump in because the opportunity cost would be too great, as we've discussed on this podcast many times before. A couple other things before we wrap up here on this episode of the podcast. Uh, Crossingbroad.com had a story that noted the scoreboard on the left and right field walls, you know, right around where Chaz McCormick smashed into the into the wall um, where they had the out-of-town scoreboard. The out-of-town scoreboard is going away. It's going to be replaced by a video board. They have a they have something like this at Nats Park where the scores are flashed up on a video board so that in between innings they can show advertisements on there and all this kind of stuff. Man, I think that's a terrible idea. I think it's a horrible idea. The great thing about that old-timey scoreboard is that it just gives you a little bit of nostalgic feel. The light, you know, the bulbs and and um, you know, the having, you know, where these where they even have like bulbs on on like where where hitters are on the bases, you know, like where base runners are, top and bottom of the line, top of the bottom of the of the inning and all that kind of stuff. I just I thought that was a it's a I didn't realize how much I liked it until the idea of it. And I think that uh, Crossing Broad had like a screenshot of just this black video board now. Maybe I'll be surprised, but I just don't like taking away some of the, some of the old timey feel there. I like I just I, I it's a mistake. I think it's a bad idea, but you know what are you going to do? Uh, there's a way to show advertising in another part of the stadium. Um, not that there aren't already enough video boards and advertising all over that place that you can't that you can't just leave the the, the out of town scoreboards alone for crying out loud. But uh, the Phillies have decided that uh, they need to monetize uh, the the scoreboard in left and right in left and right field, and so. That's what they're going to do. All right. Uh, the last thing is that uh, the Philly, the uh, sorry, not the Phillies, uh, MLB Network over the last few weeks have been by tens releasing their top 100 players in baseball for 2024. Uh, there are five Phillies who made the list. Uh, the top is Bryce Harper at number 11. Trey Turner comes in at number 16. That's much higher than I thought it was going to be. Um, 
I have a top 100 myself, which I'm going to release this week. Not that anybody cares, but I did not have Trey Turner nearly that high. Uh, Zach Wheeler at 28. I had, I would have had Zach Wheeler higher probably than Trey Turner on this list. JT Rail Muto comes in at number 46. And Kyle Schwarber at 57. That's much higher than I had Kyle Schwarber. But that's where the list ends. Five Phillies in MLB Network's top 100 right now. Uh, Aaron Nola, notable in his absence. Among starting pitchers, Zach Wheeler was the number three starting pitcher behind Garrett Cole at number nine and Spencer Strider at number 17. They also did release release their top 10, which I think is a super interesting list. Uh, they had Julio Rodriguez, uh, the Mariners' phenomenal young player, at number 10. Garrett Cole, Yankees' starting pitcher at number nine. Jordan Alvarez of the Astros at eight. Juan Soto at number seven. Corey Seager, the Rangers' young infielder, comes in at number six, followed by Freddie Freeman at five. Here's where it gets a little weird. Shohei Otani at number four with Aaron Judge at three, Mookie Betts at two, and Ronald Acuna, the number one player in baseball. Now, the way that I think Major League Baseball, the MLB Network, did this list, it seems to me that if you're putting Shohei Otani at four, it's because he's not pitching this year. So what this is, this is not necessarily then the 100 best players in baseball. What you're telling me this is, these are the players ranked from 1 to 100 who we think will have the biggest impact in 2024. So this is mostly a most impactful players of 20 for 2024, for this year specifically. Because if we're just talking about best players in baseball, who are the best, who are the top 100 players in baseball? Any list that does not have Shohei Otani as the best player in baseball is illegitimate, okay? I get it that if he's only a hitter this year, then yes, Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, Ronald Acuna, and maybe even Freddie Freeman should all be ahead of him. You could even put Juan Soto ahead of him, right? I mean, Juan Soto is is not a very good defender, but... I don't know if he's a better, maybe he's not a better offensive player than, than Shohei Otani. But if you're if you're stripping Otani as a pitcher out, then what you're doing is you're basically saying this is a one-year list for 2024 most impactful this season. But Shohei Otani is the best player in baseball. He's the most talented player we have ever seen. So this, this isn't an objective best 100 players in baseball then. This is something different, which is fine, and maybe it takes too long to explain it that way. It's easier just to say the MLB Network top 100. But this isn't this isn't you know again Ronald Acuna is amazing. I think he's probably number two. I think Mookie Betts would be number three. You could have Judge at four. I mean I think this whole list is fine. Just put Shohei Otani at the top of it. I don't care if he's pitching this year or not. We all know Shohei Otani is the best player in baseball. We all know it. I also think Bryce Harper should be in the top 10. Um, I, But who do I kick out? <laughs> uh, you'll have to find out when I when I share my list uh, this week, uh, who, I, who I did not have in the top 10 uh, that MLB Network did. I also don't have my list in front of me, so I don't remember who I didn't have in the top 10. But I did have Bryce Harper in my top 10. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think um, Shohei Otani has to be at the top of any top 100 baseball players list. It, he just does. 
We've never seen anything like this guy. He he's won two unanimous MVPs in three years, guys. That's the best player in baseball. Yeah, he's not pitching this year. He's going to pitch again. And so, you know, I just uh, it's it's a different list. It's not it's not a. 100 best players in baseball list. It's, it's, it's something else. And, uh, hopefully we'll do, um, I think, you know, Justin, Liz and I, we can, uh, do our own list maybe, uh, on Sunday night or, or Monday night, whenever we record again. But I think that'd be some fun, uh, for us to kind of go through maybe our top 20 collectively. Uh, we can go give our top 20 players in baseball or top 21 since there's three of us. Um, or maybe we'll do top 30. Who knows? Guys, don't hold me to this. I'm just spitballing here as we go along. All right. You can't, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't, this is not gospel. All right. I'm just, uh, I'm just shining shoes here. Trying to, trying to get through the end of the podcast and, and, and make it small talk as we're, as we're doing it here, guys. All right, look, that's going to wrap up this edition of Hitting Season. Want to remind you guys, I did mention that Hitting Season now has a YouTube page. Justin and Liz and I, we are recording our Sunday night podcast that we do together. So, uh, you can see the podcast that we do, the three of us together, uh, and also some clips when I have uh, guests on the show, we'll put those on the Hit Season YouTube page as well. So go to YouTube, just do a search for Hitting Season and you'll find us there, please subscribe. And uh, we'd, we'd love for you to do that and find us that way. Uh, also go to our uh, Hit and Season landing page at billypen.com. I'll have a new article up there on Wednesday for y'all to read. Uh, pardon me, on Thursday for y'all to read. So it's at billypen.com slash hit and season. And of course, we have bonus podcasts for those of you who want to be Patreon members uh, for Hit and Season. Go to patreon.com slash hit and season to find out all the good stuff we've got there. Some brand new dirty inning episodes up there for you uh, that you're going to want to check out. Some of them are free. Some of them you have to sign up on the $5 a month tier for. So we would encourage you to do that so you can get some fine bonus Phillies podcast stuff from us. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on Hit and Season. <laughs>